If you would, can you open up to Hebrews chapter 4? Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 11 through 13. As you go there, I'll quickly pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for all of these wonderful children. Lord, we pray as we heard them sing that we would have the pleasure to see each and every one of them baptized, each and every one of them converted, and that we would, as a church and as parents and as just people involved in these children's lives, would do everything to see them saved. Lord, bless them, keep them, and save them all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 4, we'll read verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit and of joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." So our passage here is picking up on what his argument really has been at the end of Hebrews chapter 3 all the way up to Hebrews chapter 4. You see that, let us therefore. So he's concluding on that. And what he's been doing is he's been pointing back to that wilderness generation. And this is actually very common in the Bible. Can anyone think of any other places where the wilderness generation is brought up? Can anybody think of any? The book of Jude, remember? He gives, that, he gives three examples, one of which is the wilderness generation. You see the same thing in the book of Corinthians. It's constant. The wilderness generation is one of the many examples. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for instruction, for correction, for reproof, and training in righteousness. But it seems specifically that the Bible makes much of that wilderness generation. And the point is, is that that wilderness generation is really a peril It's really a terrifying story because they were clearly the people of God. They had God's leaders. They had God's signs. They had all of the external marks of being the people of God, for they were the people of God in that sense. And yet, the vast majority of them did not enter into the promised land. We had Caleb, Joshua, but that's about it. Remember, they all died. That whole generation died in the wilderness. So in light of that, in light of this terrifying reality of the entire generation dying in the wilderness, look at verse 11 again. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. In other words, don't let that be you. Now, I want you to see that's exactly what our text says. It tells you to look and consider and make sure that isn't you. Now, what a tragic and horrible thought to imagine that you could be a member of Andover Baptist Church or of your child. You could be an attendee of Andover Baptist Church. You might have been baptized or have plans on being baptized. You may come to church weekly. You may tithe Everyone in your family may think that you are saved, and yet all along, the truth is you have never been born again. You do all these external acts, and yet down deep in your heart, 
You've never been born again. You've never truly confessed Jesus as Lord. And you will find yourself one day in the company of that horrible throng of people in Matthew 7, where Jesus warns, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I would declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. What a terrible reality. When you read that passage, hopefully you don't see yourself in that future prophecy. But there are certainly many people who will say that and will do that. And it's a truly awful outcome. So how can we make sure that we don't find ourselves among the many who say we have done this or that, but find themselves cast out of the kingdom of God? The answer is to make our calling and election sure. Right? You recognize that passage, Second Peter 1 verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. You are called to make sure that you are called, that you are in fact saved, that your election is sure. But we say that and we quote that verse, but what does that actually look like in your life? How do you make your calling and election sure? How do you know that you know that you're saved? We quote the verse, make your calling and election sure, and you nod your head and say, yes, I'm going to make my calling and election sure, but, but how do you do it? Because self-deceived people don't realize they're self-deceived. So how do you know? Well, let's look at that. Can you turn over to Second Peter? Second Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look at how to make your calling and election sure. Because we always quote that verse, but we seldom remember the context of the verse and to see actually how to apply the verse in our lives. Second Peter chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 5. But also for this very reason... Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you see there's a context. You see that? Therefore, verse 10, therefore, brethren... In light of what he just said, be the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, do what things? Well, we see that in verse 5. Add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and these things. And you see in verse 8, if these things are yours and abound, you will not be unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we make our calling and election sure? Is that we add to our faith the fruits of the Spirit. Is that we are not satisfied with simply just being saved. We, we've escaped hell, hallelujah, and that's it. And then we just figure out how close to the world that we can possibly get. What is the bare minimum that I must do? What is the bare minimum I must give? What is the bare minimum I must read my Bible? What is the bare minimum I must pray? How much secular things can I possibly consume without 
being in sin, so forth and so on. This is not the way it ought to be. We shouldn't be simply saying, I have faith, and so I need to have the bare minimum amount of works possible. Jesus redeemed us to make a people who were zealous for good works. Zealous means on fire. Zealous means to be passionate. Are we zealous for good works? Are we zealous for God? What are you zealous for? If someone were to observe you and watch you and say, so-and-so is passionate about X, what would it be? Would it be reading? Would it be sports? Would it be music? Would it be money? Would it be retirement? What would it be? Would it be hunting? What would it be? Would it be the Lord? Because that's what he redeemed us, not to barely be saved. He redeemed us to be passionate about God. So how do we make our calling and election sure according to 1 Peter? It's right there, verse 5. Add to your faith virtue. Add to your faith godliness. How do we make our calling and election sure? By looking at this list and saying, those are mine, and I abound in them. You see that? Look at verse 10 again. Excuse me, verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound. Now, sometimes we'll just say we're just an evil, wicked, terrible, sinner, no good, worth nothing kind of person. The hardest, deceitful, and desperately wicked, who can know it, right? I'm just a disgusting, terrible sinner. All I can do is sin, and that's just the way it is. But that's not actually the case. That's who you were, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been redeemed. No, you should not be a pig that is bathing in the mud. We know this passage very well when it comes to so-called gay Christianity. If someone says, I am that way, and Christian will commonly come to this passage. But this passage isn't directly referring to that, or it's, it's not limited to that. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals. That's why we come to this verse. Nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. It's not just true for that kind of alternative sinful lifestyle, but all of that, all of that, being a reviler, being a gossip, being a drunkard, being a fornicator, all of these things should be things that you were, such were some of you, but you've been washed, but you've been sanctified, but you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the point of all this is to say that one of the ways that we know that we are Christian is not by being bare minimalist when it comes to our spiritual lives. It's not by simply saying, I pray to prayer, I think I believe, and that's it. I'm going to do as little as I possibly can for the kingdom of God. That is not making your calling and election sure. That is actually an attitude of a false believer, or at least a believer in a very bad state. Instead, we make our calling and election sure by adding to our faith, virtue, godliness, perseverance, and all of these things, and making sure as you look in the mirror, you can see a transformed life. If you say, I've encountered the living God, the living God has taken these dry bones and made them alive. They've resurrected me from the dead. You would think there'd be some evidence of that transformation in your life. Now, some of you were too young to remember being resurrected, but you should at least see the aftermath of the resurrection, right? If you say, this person has been resurrected and you missed the resurrection, do you at least see the life? 
You might not see the resurrection, but you have at least see the corresponding life. And so too, as we say that we have been resurrected, we've encountered the living God, we should be able to look at our lives and see that we have the fruits of the Spirit instead of the fruits of the flesh. So that's one way we make our calling and election sure. Another way that we make our calling and election sure is by being, according to verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 4, being diligent to enter that rest. There's a diligency that we have a desire that we're pressing in, that we're looking at our hearts, we're looking at our behaviors, we're looking at our trust and our love, and we're seeing if we have truly repented of our sins. Have we entered that rest? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have you entered that rest? Are you diligent about the things of the Lord? We can be diligent about so many things. I want to make sure that I paid my bills. I want to make sure that I'm on time. I want to make sure that I do this or that. I want to make sure I get good grades. I want to make sure I do good on sports. I want to make sure I get that new X, Y, and Z. We can be diligent on many things, but are we diligent about our soul? Are we diligent that we have entered into that rest, not just for other people for a second, but yourself? Is that, a, is that something that you're diligent about? That you say, have I entered that rest? Have you ever wrestled with that? Or do you just take it for granted? Sure, I'm, I'm saved, I'm saved, I know it. Why do you know you're saved? Well, I know it. I think I'm saved. Do you have a haphazard attitude about your salvation? That's not what you're told here. You said be diligent to enter into that rest, to make sure that you have done it. The question is, have you really cried out to the Lord and asked him to save you? Are you currently truly looking to him as your only savior? Do you truly believe that there is a place called hell where you will be eternally tormented if you do not repent and believe? And do you believe that you've escaped that through the blood of Jesus? You know what amazes me to this day? Talking about lack of diligence. It amazes me to this day. I will find people that I ask, are you saved? Yeah, I've been saved all my life. Okay, maybe that's true. Maybe you were saved after two years old. I'm not going to say that's impossible. But then I ask them, have you ever called upon the name of the Lord? They say, no. Unbelievable. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? One day you die and stand before the Lord, and he asks you, have you ever called upon my name? You say, no, I never got around to it. I just assumed. That's not a position I would want to be, especially not knowing what the Bible actually says. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him shall not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How could you know that scripture and never apply it to yourself? How could you Hear that. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation and never call upon his name. We ask God for all kinds of things. Every time we feel any pain, any nicks, any trouble, tribulation comes our way, generally speaking, we send up a prayer request, even if it's half-hearted. But how could we never be so unconcerned about our soul that we ask God to save our soul? One way that we can be diligent about entering into that rest is asking God to enter into that rest. Does that make sense? If you want something bad enough, 
Parents, I mean, that's true. If your kid wants something, don't they just ask you? And then you ignore them and they ask you again? And then that, and just eventually, sometimes they wear you down. Isn't that true? They just wear you down. And that kid doesn't have to be encouraged to ask you. They see something they want and they know that you're in the way and they're going to keep asking you, right? Well, that's the way we should be about God. If we want that rest, if we're diligent to enter that rest, we should make sure we ask our Heavenly Father to enter into that rest. And I always tell people, if you say, I don't know if I've entered into that rest, I want to be diligent, I want to be saved, I want to go and be with the Lord when I die, I'm not sure if I'm saved, you know what you should do? You should ask God to save you. There's no harm in asking God to save you. God will never rebuke you. I don't know why you asked me to save me. No. We should always ask the Lord to save us if there's a shadow of a doubt. All right, let's continue with the text. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than two, any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow. And it's the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him who we must give an account. So right now I'm about to do something unfortunate. I may, maybe not, I may steal one of your favorite verses in the Bible. And it's this verse. Many of you like this verse, right? You've seen this verse before? That the, the word of the Lord is this sharp sword dividing things. You probably quote this verse. This is a great verse. I love this verse. But I will say that I'm fairly convinced, you may disagree with me, that's fine, that this verse is actually not saying exactly what you think it's saying. Or it's not speaking to exactly what you think it's speaking to. Now before you pick up your stones and stone me, I'll probably give the verse back to you at the end, so keep listening. But I think that this verse is almost always quoted to talk about the authority and the power of the word of God. Because it says that, right? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharpened into any two-edged sword. So when you talk about the powerfulness of the word of God, you come to this verse because it says, for the word of God is powerful. Why would you not? And it makes sense. But here's something. Let me ask you this. As you quoted this verse to support that, or if you heard this verse quoted to support the idea that the word of God, the scriptures, is powerful, how often have you seen verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest, quoted? How often do you start in verse 11? Not very often, right? You don't usually hear verse 11, and then we go up to the word of God is powerful. And even more importantly, how often do you hear verse 13? Quote, it, it's literally right after, right? It ends in verse 12, the discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. But you almost never, is this true? You almost ever hear verse 13 quoted, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom, whom we must give an account. You almost never hear that verse quoted. What I'm saying is this, when you cite this verse, and you hear it quoted, you almost never hear verse 11, the, the verse immediately before it, or verse 13, the verse immediately after. But other scriptures is not that way. You can quote John 3.15, John 3.16, John 3.17, 18 and 19. It doesn't matter because it's all talking about that Christ so loved the world, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and the only way of salvation is Jesus Christ. You can quote as much of that passage as you want, and you're never gonna wonder if you're off track. And yet with this passage... If you quote the immediately preceding verse, you don't see the connection. And if you quote the immediately after verse, you don't see the connection. And I think the reason is, is because this verse is not directly speaking about what we think it's speaking about. We think usually that this is a wonderful proof text, and it kind of is, about the power of the scriptures. But I think actually, this verse is actually talking about Jesus Christ. I'm trying to prove that to you. Look at verse 13. 
and there is no creature hidden from his sight. See that? Does everybody in the Bible say his? No creature from his sight. It doesn't say its sight. It's his sight. Now his is a person. It is a thing. The word of God is a person or a thing. If it's talking about the Bible, it's a thing. If it's talking about Jesus, it's a person. So it says, and nothing is hidden from his sight. That means that's referring to Christ. Now, before I try to prove that, if, I w- if you just had verse 13, if we ripped it out of complete context and just had verse 13, who would that be referring to? If you just had verse 13, who would you say? God. But, but specifically, what person? You probably wouldn't pick the, tr- the Holy Spirit. You could, but you probably wouldn't. It'd probably be a debate between the Father and Jesus. Well, do you know that the Bible specifically says that all judgment has been given by the Father to the Son? So who will you be judged by? You'll be judged by the Son, not the Father. And we see that in multiple places. In John 5, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. John five twenty six. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Acts 10, 42, God commanded us to preach to the people and testify that it is Christ who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So who is going to be your judge? God. What person of the Trinity is going to be your judge? Jesus. So as we come back to this passage, when it says that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account, this fits perfectly the idea that our supreme judge is Jesus. Hopefully you see that. So verse 13 fits Jesus perfectly. That's my argument. The other argument is this. When you see the word he, he is a pronoun. I'm not trying to get into grammar here, but here's a little grammar. He is a pronoun. Pronouns refer to nouns, and they have an antecedent, right? God created the world, and he is good. Who does he refer to? He refers to an antecedent, which is usually the noun that immediately preceded it. So in that example, God created the world, and he is good. He refers to God. So you have a pronoun here, and you're looking for an antecedent. Who is What is the antecedent? If you go back, the only antecedent you have is the Word of God. Now, as we think about that title, the Word of God, hopefully we should think about other passages that explicitly call Jesus the Word of God. Can anyone think of a passage that Jesus is specifically called the Word of God? John 1, in the beginning was the, and the Word was with, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Revelation 19.13, it specifically says that Christ was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So Jesus is specifically called the Word of God. And then right after, we get a description of Jesus. And also, think about the context. As, as you look at the context of Hebrews, it's not talking about just the powerful message of God and the scriptures and how powerful and wonderful they are. Psalm 19 talks about that. Psalm 119 talks about that. Many passages talk about that, but that's not the context. The context is, let us be diligent to enter into that rest. Don't be like the wilderness generation. Then it immediately talks about how powerful the word of God is and how he can divide spirit and soul, bone and marrow, that he can see the hearts and the intent of the heart and that you are exposed and naked before him whom you must give an account. You see, the context supports the idea that, here's what he's saying, you may be able to fool men, 
You may be able to trick people. You may be able to sit there in the church and everyone thinks you're saved. But guess what? The word of God, Jesus Christ, is so powerful, he can see right through you. You're completely naked and exposed before him and he will find you out and you will not enter his rest. That's the context. So I'm arguing that the context makes sense that this is Jesus. The fact that verse 13 refers to he and not it makes sense that this is Jesus. And the description perfectly fits Jesus. So I think that this verse perfectly is actually describing Jesus. Now, why do I tell you all this? Here's why I don't tell you this. So you can become that person when the scripture is quoted to say that's actually not talking about scripture. That's not why I'm saying that. that that's just being a know-it-all. First off, I might be wrong. You might think I'm wrong. But that's not why I told you that. The reason I told you this is because I want you to understand scripture in its context and to preach what the word of God actually says. The other point is, and I said I would take this scripture away from you but give it back, I think that this is actually an example of a double entendre in scripture where that the author, probably the, the author of Hebrews, but certainly God, wrote this in such a way that he knew you would immediately think this is talking about scripture, but then as you more, more diligent and study the context, you would realize it's more specifically talking about Christ. So I think it's a double entendre. I think ultimately this refers to Jesus specifically, but by secondary means, it refers to scripture. So there's nothing wrong with quoting the scripture to refer to scripture. I just think in context, it more specifically deals with Christ. Either way, I think we all can hopefully agree that the description here perfectly describes scripture, which is powerful and a sharp two-edged sword. We have many scriptures that say that. We know that's the case. And we also can hopefully see that this is Christ too, who knows our hearts, and we are completely naked before him, and he will one day judge us. And that's a terrifying thought, that Christ, who we have nowhere to hide, he can completely see your thoughts and the intents of your hearts, will one day judge you. And so, make peace with him. Make peace with me. That's what he says. Make peace with me. Make peace with me. Enter into my rest. I would not have you perish. I desire not the death of the wicked, but come to me. Stop hiding. Stop being like Adam and Eve, hiding in the bushes. Stop pretending that you're saved, pretending to be a Christian, but rather come to him and receive salvation. All right, I'm out of time. Let me real quick hit a thorny issue and we'll be done. I must say this so we don't have to come back here. On a completely side note, I want you to look at verse 12 again and notice that he, has, he describes the powerful word of God that can divide the soul and the spirit and the joints, and the marrow. And so in the last one or two minutes I have left before I close here, I'm going to try to get into a very thorny issue in theology. And it's the question is, how many parts are you? And there's three traditional answers. There's trichotomy, dichotomy, and physicalism. Physicalism says that you're just a body. No soul, no nothing. You're just a body. Very few Christians have ever believed that because the scripture is so clearly against that view. The other view is dualism, or dichotomy, which says you're a body and a soul. That's it. You have a physical and a, and a, and a non-physical, uh, incorporeal aspect. And then some people argue a trichotomy, that you have three aspects of you. You have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Which one is true? Well, I cannot possibly address this issue in any depth here, but I will simply say I think the truth is found somewhere between dualism and trichotomy. But if you pen me down, I would have to say I do believe that this scripture and one else, one other, which I'll read in a second, 1 Thessalonians 5, do actually show that we are tripartite, that we in fact do have three parts. Now, what do I make of that? Nothing. I'm just trying to be faithful to the scripture. If you disagree, that's fine. But the reason I would say that I think this scripture specifically 
shows us that we are actually tripartite, that we have three parts, is right here when it says that he is able to divide the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. Now, I see one doctor in this room, but most of you, I think, took a basic biology class, right? Some of you kids, you taking biology? Not part of your homeschool curriculum? It should be. Every time you eat a chicken bone, you can figure this out. Next time you go home, I want you to grab a chicken bone. I want you to snap it. Parents, can you do that? Grab a chicken bone and snap it. And inside, you're going to see something. It's called marrow, right? You're going to see something inside the bone. It's marrow. There's a bone, and inside there's marrow, okay? Now, just correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure that bone and marrow are not the same thing. Are they, are they the same thing? Okay, she says part of the bone. I think they're distinct. I think I'll know the difference between hitting me with some marrow and hitting me with a bone. Okay? They're very similar. They're very entwined. Nevertheless, there's a difference of texture and taste of marrow and bone. Very close, but different. And here we have the division of the soul and the spirit. Now, here's my question. If they're the exact same thing, how can you divide the exact same thing? See, it doesn't make sense to me. As long as there's a distinction between bone and marrow, then that, to me, creates a context to think that there's a division between the soul and the spirit. And that's why I personally believe that there is a division of the soul and the spirit. Now, they're very closely intertwined. And what I think that they are, personally, is I think that the, the difference is that we have a life force, the breath of life, that comes from God. And then we have an individual soul. So we have a body, we have a life force, the breath of life, that gives us life. And then we have an individual person, that's the soul. If you disagree, that's fine. But that's, this is why I believe it. Because I think there's no way of doing justice to the scripture. We're trying to say that the soul and the spirit are the exact same thing. Here's one more passage and we'll be done. First Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. When he says, I want you entirely to be complete, he says, soul, spirit, and body, which I think is the the completeness of you. Now, what else do I make of this? Nothing. Two scriptures. It's in the God's word. I know nothing else about it. I just believe because of these two passages that we, in fact, have a body and a soul and a spirit. Now, I must say this, and I'll truly be done. Most of the time in the Bible, this is the only two passages that even make this distinction. Most of the time, if you see soul or spirit, they refer to the incorporeal part of you. So don't do anything weird with this if you do become convinced this is true. The Bible says it here. It doesn't tell us anything else about it, and I'm sure God will tell us more in the end. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your spirit. Lord, we ask that we would be diligent to enter that rest. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us not to just be diligent toward ourselves, but that we would diligently want to see our neighbors, our children, our relatives, everyone that we have contact with would be diligent to want them to enter that rest. And that diligency would actually result in true behavior where we seek to shape and to pray for and to be used as instruments of your conversion on this earth. Help us to be light and salt and we want to see our community change. We want to see our neighbors saved. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.